Um, if you've missed the past couple of weeks and uh, you're trying to play catch-up this morning, I'll give you a little quick refresher. Uh, the main point that James is stressing to us, right, is uh, what true faith is, what true faith looks like, what it means, and, and especially how it's manifested in the everyday life for the believer. You may have heard that phrase before, orthodoxy, orthopraxy. And what that means is, is right belief, right thinking manifests itself in right living. And that's what James is talking about in his epistle. He has the same goal that the Apostle Paul has in all of his letters. He wants to correct us, teach us, train us up with words of wisdom so that we might be mature men in faith where all of our bodies without reservation are purely and wholly devoted to Christ. That's his, that's his goal here in the letter of James. Now how that shakes out, in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, we saw that James, he described the differences between a true faith and a false faith. And he said that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, just like today, there were people back then that perverted that gospel. They perverted the faith and they said, oh great, this is like one giant game of Monopoly. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, that means I get a get out of jail free card, I can do whatever the heck I want. But James comes in and he says, well, it is true, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but hear, 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 hear this, believers. A saving faith is never alone. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, it always manifests itself in a life lived. As Christians, we are not saved by the law of God, we are saved in Christ. But as those saved in Christ, we do love the law. And we want to follow the law of God because those are the very desires of our Savior, Okay. So after that then, after he tells us what true faith is, he kind of gives us at the very end of chapter 3, three little markers or indicators or whatever you might want to call them, examples of what it looks like for true faith lived. Now in chapter 2, we studied one of those indicators and it was simply this, that a true and saving faith that always manifests itself in loving, actually caring for other people. It's that idea of a holistic gospel. When we go to people, we bring them the hope of the gospel, but we also show them the gospel by being the hands and feet of Christ in the way that we love and care for the poor, the widowed, and the oppressed. We saw that in chapter 2. Now in chapter 3 then, we come to a second marker of true and saving faith, and we're actually going to pick this back up in chapter 4, but it's this plainly. A marker of true saving faith is holy speech and a tamed tongue. James talks about this for 12 verses in chapter 3. All right, So that's what we're going to talk about today. Holy speech and a tamed tongue. Now we might ask ourselves, why does James spend so much time talking about the tongue? This is the longest and most sustained teaching on the tongue in the entire New Testament. Why does James take up so much time talking about this little old thing? I mean, of all the things this guy could talk about, all the sins that plague this world, and we know there's many, and of all the sins that plague us, why does he spend so much time about words, okay? I mean, after all, what is the big deal about our words? Think about children. We teach our children a couple of things. One, actions speak louder than words. Now, there's truth to that. But we also teach them the nursery rhyme. How's it go? Sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What is, after all, the big deal about words? They're just words. Think about our nation. National leaders, a lot of them have completely dismissed the importance of words. One political leader tried to convince us that little white lies or half-truths is just smart politics. Another national leader said that lewd speech is simply locker room talk. Our words don't define us. What is the big deal about words? 
Think about us individually. Most of us in this room, if you're here, probably don't like to hear lewd and coarse and crude speech from another human being. But when it comes to ourselves, we usually cut ourselves slack. I mean, sometimes I just want to say, James, listen, bro, you try being an Ole Miss fan and driving in Memphis and control your tongue, sir, okay? I mean, there are people, I mean, seriously, train conductors, they're the most cursed people in the world, I mean, keeping you from getting to work on time. But what's the big deal about that? They're never going to hear our words. What is the big deal about our words? There are scores of Christians out there, even some pastors in their attempts to be edgy, who use coarse language unapologetically because they say they want to be authentic, real, and raw Christians. They're just words. What's the big deal with our words? Well, James standing on the shoulders of Old Testament wisdom Solomon and walking in the very footsteps of Jesus Christ himself say our words are an extremely big deal because our words carry with them great power. The power to give life and the power to destroy Think about that through our biblical theological lens. Go back to Genesis. What happens in Genesis? God spoke in creation. In creation, he spoke life. All that exists came to exist by his spoken word. He spoke things into creation. The apex of his creation, humanity, he spoke. He breathed life into our being. By his spoken word, he revealed himself to us so that we can Know him by his words. He created us in such a way, making us in his image, so that we have the ability to understand his words and actually have a conversation with the creator of all, of all things, the cosmos. God spoke in creation. He spoke life. But however, God is not the only person that spoke in Genesis. We get to Genesis 3, and who else spoke? Satan spoke. But he spoke death in the fall. In his deception, he twisted and maligned the very words of God to lead humanity and all of creation into the destruction and the corruption of sin. God spoke life in creation. Satan spoke death in the fall. Now you say, Barton, that's God and Satan. Well, Proverbs 18.21 says, us, with our tongues, we have that very same power. A little different. But still, we in our tongues, Proverbs 18.21 says, you and I have the power of life and the power of death in our words. And we see that in history, don't we? In the 20th century, two very powerful men wielded the power of the tongue for their respective nations. Martin Luther King being one of them. He used the power of his words to convict a nation, to reinvigorate a church, and to lead our nation into one of the most important movements this country has ever seen since its founding. By his words, he spoke life. But a couple of decades before that, in Germany, a man named Adolf Hitler during World War II used the power of his tongue to completely delude an entire nation and convince millions of people to commit some of the most horrific atrocities this world has ever seen. There's life and there's death in the tongue. And on a more personal scale, each of us have a father or a mentor. Some of us had fathers and mentors that shamed us, and told us we were nothing when we were kids. Others of us have fathers and mentors that told us they loved us, no matter what we do, that they're there for us. And we know the difference between those words. One of them brings life, and the other brings death. Our words have great power. And so Jesus and his servant James tells us as Christians, we must see the importance of our speech. 
Not only because our tongue carries with it great power, but most importantly, as we'll see, our tongues reveal to us the conditions of our souls. And so James, in his attempt to make sure that we become mature in Christ, he tells us five very important things about our tongue. Five things that we must heed because they are vital for our spiritual life. Okay, so before we go into the word of the Lord, let us first go to our God in prayer and ask for him to meet with us by his spirit for our eyes to be open to his truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, another morning, again, uh, where we can come together as friends, family, um, most importantly, brothers, and the only family that matters, your family. And Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts and our minds, that you would uh, protect us from letting our minds wander to what this day has in store for us, and that you would direct our hearts and our minds to your word, that we'd be informed by your word, and that, Father, you would speak life into us, that we wouldn't simply be informed, but that we'd be transformed. We thank you for all the people which you've brought here this morning. We thank you for men like Lucian who brings friends to this gathering which we know, all of us know, blesses us so. And Lord, we pray that this morning would be a blessing to us. And we pray this in the blessed name of Christ. Amen. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. James says, Not many of you should become teachers. (laughs) So says the teacher. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man... Being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. All right, gentlemen, five things. Five things that James tells us about the tongue here. One of them is somewhat of a call. It's not an explicit call, but it's it's a call nonetheless. We see that in those first two verses. Then after that, he gives us four little uh, nuggets to undergird the call that he gives us. So we're going to look at all five of these things. Now, the first one is the call, verse 1-2. And it's this, the Christian must be careful to tame his tongue. This is what James is teaching us in verses 1 through 2. The Christian must be careful to tame his tongue. Now, we've already seen why that's important, right? In James chapter 1, verse 26, James says, For those of you who consider themselves religious, but do not have a rein on their tongue, their religion is worthless. What's he saying there? Well, again, he is saying that holy speech in a bridal tongue is a true marker of a true and saving faith. It is 
That's important. So the Christian must be careful to tame his tongue. But in verses 1 through 2, he gets a little bit more practical. And in fact, he's going to tell us a lot of things that we need to know in order for us to tame our tongue. But in verses 1 through 2, he gets really practical about the necessity for the Christian to tame his tongue. And the first thing that he says is right there in verse 1. God holds us responsible for our words. All right, the Christian must be careful to tame his tongue because God simply holds us responsible for our words. What does he say? James says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, for those who teach will be judged more strictly. God holds us responsible for our words. Now, two things about verse 1. Number one, obviously, teachers of God's word must be cautious. Okay, they, they must be cautious. Am I convicted by this verse? Absolutely. Okay, <laughs> teachers of the word must be cautious. I remember my first day in seminary. Okay, when I graduated college, I had the opportunity to go to business school or seminary. I chose to go to seminary, and I was so excited. I'm serious. I was like a, I was like a little girl. I had my trapper keeper. I mean, I was ready to go. I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to learn stuff. I want to learn how to teach God's word. Well, my first class, my first day, I had this Gaelic teacher. All right, his name was Colin Nickel, and uh, he was this really rough guy and uh, had a beard. And uh, he ended up being an incredible man. But that that first day, it was terrifying. Okay, we're all excited. Seminary started. He sits us down <laughs> first day of class. And uh, he didn't say anything. He opens up his Bible and reads James chapter 3, verse 1. And he had that Gaelic accent. He goes, listen, you can get out now if you have the opportunity. Because as teachers, you are going to be judged. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he went on for 10 minutes in this strong. And I'm telling you, by the end of the class, everybody wanted a clean pair of shorts. Okay, this was terrifying. And he really made us feel the weight and the responsibility of handling God's word. And I'm glad he did. But I think that's one of the reasons that James puts this here. Because he wants you to know, listen, there is seriousness that must be had when opening up and handling the very spoken word of God. And not just pastors, but anyone who teaches an authority. Whether if you're an elder, a deacon, a Bible school teacher, or a small group leader, or a campus minister. We must have a certain sense of seriousness and understand the gravity of opening God's word. Now, the main reason that James inserts this here is, is shown in the context. Okay? Um, back then, a lot of people, most people, wanted to be teachers of God's word. Every grandmama wanted their grandson to grow up to be a scribe or a rabbi. Okay? Because back then in society, it carried with it much prestige. I mean, it was a position of honor. Not so much today anymore, but back then, it was especially a position of honor. Everyone wanted to be a rabbi because it carried with it this sense of fame and respect, and, and everybody wanted to be that. Now, also in the context, if we look later in chapter 3, in chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 11, we see that there was a lot of spiritually immature men in the church who were causing all sorts of problems for the church. And really, they were acting like children. They were envious people. They wanted to exalt themselves over fellow brothers because they wanted to be in the spotlight. They were causing quarrels and all sorts of dissension. And scholars tell us it's actually those people who most likely wanted to be these teachers. And the reason is, is because they simply wanted to rub other people's nose in it. I mean, they were like snot-nosed know-it-alls who wanted other people to actually think they knew it all. Okay? And there's a lot of folks that go to seminary with those exact same motives. So James here is kind of weeding them out. He's like, okay, guys, all right, I know that you want to be teachers, but let me tell you, you shouldn't want to be a teacher because God's going to judge him more strictly. Now, what does it mean by judge? 
obviously, Christian teachers don't have a separate judgment day than other believers. They don't have a harsher judgment. When he uses that word judge, he's talking about two things. One, teachers open themselves up more opportunities to sin with the tongue. You know, by their very nature, teachers use their mouths, okay? And as we're going to see, we have a big problem with our mouths. But he's saying that teachers teach and use their tongues more often than the average Joe. So there's more opportunities for him to fall into sin. For example, I run no danger of crashing a plane. Why? Because I'm not a pilot. All right, you should be thankful because I have trouble driving my car, all right? But still, I am a teacher, which means I open myself up to more opportunities to sin with my tongue. But he also says that teachers need to be cautious because, in essence, they are handling the very word of God. And just like today, there were people back then who maligned God's word, twisted God's word to make it say what they wanted to say to meet their own ends. And there's people like that all over the place today. Thabiti, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Anawanabile, um, he's a very great pastor. He works with the Gospel Coalition and just a very influential person. But he calls Christians, he says, be forewarned for the pastors who make priorities, prestige, honor, and celebrity. Because those men probably are looking out for themselves and value their well-being more than they do the very word of God. And he says, I, for one, am honored to be a pastor, but not because of my fame or influence, but simply because I am able to handle and preach from the spoken word of the Lord. So Christians, those of you who are teachers, we must be cautious. But he goes on, and in the context, we see that warning, or at least that what he says to us right there, isn't just applied to teachers, but it's applied to all believers. All believers must be diligent, next point, must be diligent in guarding their tongue, in taming their tongue. Look at the context here. You know, back in that seminary day, I wasn't the only person in the classroom that wanted to go back to business school, okay? I mean, most of us wanted to. It was like, what are we getting ourselves into? And I know there's some people out there that look at a passage like this and wipe the sweat off their brow and think they dodged a bullet. But James says, no, this applies to all people who are professors and believers of Jesus Christ. Look at the context in Roman, and, uh, James chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 11. Those people who were sinning against their brothers and sisters with their tongue were not teachers yet. There were simply people who wanted to be teachers. All right, so this warning goes on to people who are just out of the congregation. Go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, when Jesus says, all Christians go out there and make disciples. What does he say after that? He says, teaching them all that I've commanded you. What does that mean? By our very nature of being in Christ, we all have been made prophets. We are all teachers of the word of God, whether if it's your vocation or not. Then we come to that passage in Matthew 12, which is, which is very heavy. What does he say in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus. Jesus says this. He says, all of you. He says, everyone, not just teachers, but everyone will be held accountable by what they say. Everyone will be held accountable by what they say. On the day of judgment for every empty word spoken, for by them will be acquitted or condemned. He says, everyone will be held accountable for their words. Now think about this. On average, by 65 years of age, every single person would have spoken 715 million words. So that means even if you're a shy person, every single one of us are gas bags. <laughs> I mean, we talk all the time. And what does Jesus say? We're going to be held accountable for every single one of them. So James says, Christians, be careful to tame your tongues because we're held responsible by God on the day of judgment. Secondly, we're to uh, guard our tongues, tame our tongues, because there's great potential for sinning with our words. We see that in 2a. Now let me tell you, this is the most encouraging part about this passage we'll get to the end. It's the silver tuna of encouragement. 
But this little phrase right here, it warms my soul in 2A, and I hope it does for you too. Because if you notice in 2A, James backs himself up into a confession, doesn't he? I mean, in his whole expose of the sins of the tongue, he backs himself up into a confession. What does he say? He says, we all stumble in many ways with the tongue. We all stumble. Who does that include? It includes James, who is a teacher held to a higher standard, an apostle for crying out loud. But he says, we all stumble in many ways. Barton, why is that encouraging? It's encouraging because right there, he completely debunks the idea of perfectionism. And he frees us from the lie of feeling like we have to be perfect in this life. And I know it, that there's people in this room who are completely paralyzed by the idea that you have to be perfect in this life. But James says, who is saved by Christ, who's in Christ, who's before Christ right now, singing his praises and glory, says, we have all sinned with our tongue. What does this teach us? Well, John the Apostle teaches us. He says in chapter 1 of his first epistle, verse 8, he says, if you say that you have no sin, listen, you're deceiving yourselves and the truth is not in you. There's not one person that's ever going to be perfect in this life. We all have sinned with our tongues. So what does this tell us? One, perfectionism or perfection is not the goal of Christianity in this age. And we must remember that. That's good news. Perfection is not the goal of Christianity in this age. One day we will be perfect in Christ. Before him in glory, we will be perfect. But that day is not today. But because our tongues have great potential of sinning, what the goal of Christianity is in this age is maturity. And James says, because we're held responsible before our words, because we have great possibility of sinning with our tongue, the mature Christian must be careful to tame his tongue. Thirdly, and lastly, he tells us that the reason that we must be careful to tame our tongue is because our tongue is a prime component for our sanctification. We see that in 2b. In the second half of verse 2, he uses that word perfect. But like I just said, the idea that James has here is not perfection. If you open up the Greek on that word perfect, the nuance, what it's saying is, is maturity or rather mastery. Okay, so what he's saying is, if you're able to master your tongue, if you're able to bridle your tongue, you're actually able to bridle the rest of your body. I love what Ligon Duncan explains about this. He, he points us to Romans 3 to explain what that means. And he says, in Romans 3, when Paul is trying to convince his readership that they are sinful people, he plays deadful advocate. He says, listen, Jews, it's not just the Gentiles who are sinners, but you're sinners too. And the Jewish person says, no, I don't think we are. I mean, the Gentiles are definitely sinners, but I think we're okay. And he goes, no, no, you are sinners. He goes, no, I'm pretty sure we're not sinners. He goes, you are a sinner, and I'll show you why. And I'll show you how you can know. What does he point to in verses 13 and 14? Their speech. He says, look at your mouths and the things that spew from them that bears witness against you that you are, in fact, a sinner. So Ligon Duncan says then, if our speech tips us off to our sin, it is not surprising then that a keen mark of true faith and the reign of grace in our life is a bridled tongue. What that means is, is our tongue is a key component of our sanctification. One of the main battlegrounds in our fight for holiness are our mouths. And James says, we're going to see, listen, this is a true battle. The fight for holy vocal cords and holy speech is a long-lasting one. And as Christians, we got to fight that every single day and every single hour. But James raises the argument, the concern here. He goes, have you understood the importance of your words? And so we have to ask ourselves a couple of reflective questions before we move on. One, do we understand, do we believe, James, that our tongue is a key component in our sanctification? And if we do, does our pattern of speech reveal that we're fighting the good fight? A couple of good questions to ask ourselves. But that's the call. The Christian must be careful 
to tame his tongue. Now, in verses 3 through 12, he gives us an onslaught of illustrations to undergird that call. And the first one we see in verses 3 through 5, the tongue has disproportionate and incredible power. We must be careful to tame our tongue because our little tongue has disproportionate and incredible power. Now, in verses 3 through 5, he gives us three small little illustrations that all have to do with the idea of control, okay? But with each of these little illustrations, it gives us a little nuance to control. For example, in verse 3, he gives us an analogy of a bit in a horse's mouth. And from that, there's the principle, a bridled tongue can properly direct your life, okay? I'm going to be honest, outside of John Wayne movies, I know nothing about horses, all right? Uh, my mom was a horse person. She used to race her horses on the MUS practice football field, I think back in the 60s, which is awesome. Uh, so she knows about horses. I don't. But if you don't know about horses, even still, you have to admit the whole idea of a bit is amazing. Think about this. Here is a wild, spirited animal that's infinitely stronger than you are. All right? You have no possibility of taming that horse. However, if you put a tiny little piece of metal in that dude's mouth, <laughs> you can direct this giant beast anywhere you want it to go. And James is saying the same thing is true of our tiny little seemingly insignificant tongues. A bridled tongue can actually direct the course of your life. Now, how does this shake out? Solomon tells us in Proverbs 21, 23. He says, he who guards his mouth and his tongue, that is, bridled a tongue, keeps himself from calamity. What does that mean? That if you have control over your tongue, you keep yourselves out of dangerous situations and harm. Then in Proverbs 13, 3, he says, He who guards his lips guards his life, his well-being. But he who speaks rashly, an uncontrolled tongue, will come to ruin. I love what Bruce Walkie, y'all know Bruce Walkie, he's a great scholar. And he's, he kind of uh, uh, illustrates this, that 13, 3 of Proverbs. And he said, A foolish man's tongue is long enough to cut his own throat. And I wish that wasn't true, but we all know that it is. And we see that played out all the time. I mean, for example... When are athletes going to learn there are just certain things that you cannot put on Twitter? <laughs> it seems like every single day there's an athlete getting in trouble with his team or getting fined by the league because of something stupid he says on Twitter. Coaches now have seminars before seasons start to teach their players proper Twitter etiquette. That's where we've gotten in our country, okay? We have to have proper Twitter etiquette. But how many, seriously, how many, how many jobs have been lost because of one poorly chosen word at the wrong time? One sexist comment, one racist comment, whatever. Just one poorly chosen word. How many of those have ruined careers? How many marriages have been damaged from one poorly timed sentence said in anger? How much trust has been lost between parent and child because of one lie spoken? Our, parent, our, our, our tongues literally can direct the course of our lives. And James says, blessed is the man who has a bridled tongue. Now in verse 4, similar illustration. He gives us an illustration about a rudder and a ship. And the principle we get from that is, is that a controlled tongue can influence the lives of others. Okay, now, so this is kind of the same principle that we just saw in verse 3. You have a small little piece of equipment that directs the course of a large vessel. Okay, so in this case, you have a ship that in spite of, you know, rough seas and rough winds, the weight of this monster ship, a small little rudder can direct its course. Now, it's the same thing we saw with the bit in the horse's mouth, but what is the difference? A vessel, a ship, can hold a heck of a lot more people than a horse can, okay? So what James is saying is, is that if you can control your tongue, if you bridled your tongue, if you've tamed your tongue, you can actually influence the lives of others. And friends, we saw this, right? Just in that opening illustration with Hitler and Martin Luther King and all sorts of other men. By spoken words, by his controlled tongue, 
MLK influenced an entire generation, an entire country. In church history in America, we see that God used certain men in the Great Awakening to bring about spiritual revival in our nation. They influenced the nation. They influenced the church. Of course, there was the Spirit doing that, but he still used his human vessels to do it. But even on a smaller church scale, we've all been in a committee meeting or a session meeting that's gotten heated for whatever reason. Then there's that one person or that one woman who just stands up. And because of her controlled tongue or his controlled tongue, he brings a sense of peace to the room and speaks a voice of reason and calms everybody down. And everybody in that moment is just so thankful for that person. We can influence people with our words. But isn't it just for the national level? It's not just for the church scene. Do you realize for the power of your tongue, you can influence the folks that you love? Listen, because of our fallen condition, every single one of us in here expects condemnation. I mean, how many times have you gotten a text or an email that says, hey, can I talk to you? And you immediately just broke out in a cold sweat. It's like, hey, what, what have I done that's going to get me fired? You, you just start going through the index of memory. And all of us in here have shame in our lives. And that can cripple us. Pastor Andy Stanley, y'all might know him, famously he said in a sermon one day that the, the five poorly chosen words in the wrong context could completely destroy his emotionality and him professionally. And I think that's true with every single one of us. All of us experience condemnation, all of us experience shame, but if someone affirms those things in the wrong moment, it can just crush you. But think about the power that you have to be able to influence the lives of those that you love almost completely neutering the power of shame in them. One of my favorite scholars and pastors right now, his name is uh, Scott Sauls. He was one of Tim Keller's protégés. He's a pastor in Nashville now. He just wrote a book called Befriend. Highly encourage it for your small groups. But in that book, he said, because he knows that his two daughters wake up every day to an onslaught of lies of culture, telling them that they're supposed to look a certain way, because he knows his daughters wake up to an onslaught from the lies of Satan who tempts them to despair, and because he knows his daughters wake up to an onslaught of the lies of their own heart, every night before they go to sleep, he goes into their room and he speaks truth over them. And he reminds them who they are in Jesus. He reminds them of the promises of Christ. And, and more importantly, he says, you're not just my children, but you're the very children of Abba himself. Friends, we have enormous power in our tongues to influence the lives of others. Do you understand that? Then in verse 5, he says, the uncontrolled tongue, however, has the power to destroy. He says, the uncontrolled tongue is like a little fire that can run ablaze and cause horrific uh, destruction. You might remember back in 2008, there was a bunch of you know, brush fires, wildfires out in California. I know they always struggle with that, but in 2008 especially. And there was a bunch of arsonists that were going around uh, creating fires. I mean, it was disastrous. Like millions of acreage were destroyed. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was going nuts. Well, they found out like one of the kids or one of the people that started the fire wasn't an arsonist. It was a little kid. And he was just playing with matchbox. He was lighting matches. I mean, he was just being a little kid. But he accidentally started a fire and he freaked out and he left. But that little fire grew, destroyed 21 homes and 38,000 acres. That little fire. And what James is saying is our tongue, yeah, it's small, but it's a, it's a little flame. If it's uncontrolled, it's going to wreak devastation, not only in your life, but also the life of others. Speaking of cubs... Who remembers Steve Bartman? <laughs> Y'all remember that guy? Holy smokes. I mean, that poor kid. If you remember, it was in the NLCS, what was it, 2003? He was just a fan, all right? And he reached out to grab a ball, and he prevented a Cubs outfielder from catching that ball. <laughs> and the Cubs end up losing the NLCS, never went to the World Series, and the curse of the Billy Goat proceedeth, right? 
But that guy, because he did that, there's a few fans around him that just started just belittling him, cussing him, booing him. And it was bad. But before you knew it, a couple uncontrolled tongues led to a forest fire. 40,000 fans ended up chanting a certain part of the human anatomy to poor old Steve Barton. And here's this kid who's 26 years old, 24 years old, whatever it is. You have 45,000 people yelling at you and profaning your name. Can you imagine how terrible that was? My wife and I, we watched a documentary on it, and she said, how could you possibly be a Cubs fan? That was the most awful thing I've ever seen. And you know, I didn't tell her I was actually one of those people. On the, on the, you know. <laughs> but it was amazing. I mean, the security had to come. They took off his little green turtleneck, if you remember, and took off his transistor radio and his hat, and they disguised him to get him home safely. And it didn't stop there. I mean, the entire city was just up in flames. The guy had to move. He went into hiding. One uncontrolled tongue led to a forest fire. You might also remember Justine Sacco, a little bit more serious. I probably mispronounced her last name, but she was a business executive a couple of years ago, and she was flying to Africa. And before she got on the plane to Africa, she tweeted out this really insensitive and terrible little tweet. But it was just 12 words. By the time she landed, she had a text from every single person in her family and friends that she knew that said, please call me now. Because when she landed, by the time she landed, that little tweet was the number one trend on all of Twitterdom, okay? People had bloodlust. They were calling for her jaw. They were calling for her head on the platter. They were slandering her, saying wicked, awful things. Her little uncontrolled tongue led to other uncontrolled tongues, and it ruined her life. She lost her job. She became a manic depressive. She went into counseling for years, and she went into hiding. Truly, our tongue has the power to destroy. And so James says, listen, you have to understand, Christians, you must control your tongue. You must tame your tongue. Okay, because it has, it has unparalleled power. It has the power to direct and influence the lives of others, but it also has the power to destroy not only you, but the lives of others. Now, secondly, or thirdly, the reason that James tells us to control our tongue as Christians is because in our sinful state, the tongue is naturally inclined for evil. Listen, a horse is not born with a piece of metal in its mouth, okay? Nor is a human being born with a bridled tongue. Our tongues are naturally inclined for evil. In verse 6 and also verse 8, he gives us five little vivid images of the nature and danger of man's natural tongue. In verse 6a, he says the tongue is fire. Okay, I don't particularly like the message translation of the Bible, but I love how it describes this. It says, our speech can ruin the world. It can throw mud on a reputation. It can turn harmony into chaos. It can take the world up in smoke and take us along with it. And that's exactly what that Proverbs 16, 27 passage says. Our tongue is a smoldering wick. It's a fire in its natural state. What else does he say? He says, our world, our tongue is a world of unrighteousness. Now, that's a little confusing, but most scholars seem to think what's being talked about here is since that this world has fallen and we ourselves are fallen and we're immersed in a sinful culture, our tongue is kind of like a catch-all of all the sinful strategies of this world. So exalting ourselves of other people, praising ourselves instead of God, tearing others down so we can get ahead in life, all of that is in our tongues. And he says this is in our tongues. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 11, it's what comes out of a man's mouth that defiles him. What comes out of a man's mouth? Lies, slander, gossip, gossip, lust, and so on. Ligon Duncan says there's no other body part of the body that wreaks so much havoc on holy living than our tongues do. It's a world of unrighteousness. It's amazing what comes out of our mouths sometimes. He goes on to say it stains the whole body. 
listen, I have a Kimbrough curse, all right? I don't care, uh, you know, where I am. My dad and I, we could be most, have just dressed to the nines. You know, we could be in a tuxedo. It could be the most formal event ever. Uh, our wives just dress up to dress us up, you know, groom us, and we look beautiful, right? By the end of the night, there's going to be a blob of mustard on our ties. I mean, it's just, we might not even be eating mustard, but it's just going to end up there. I mean, I don't know how it, it just happens all the time. And our wives just get so frustrated with us because, you know, no matter how pretty we look, if there's a blob of mustard on your tie, the whole outfit's ruined, okay? You have to change. I go through shirts like it's nothing. It's incredible. But that's what James says. Chapter 1, verse 26. All of your religiosity, it means nothing if you don't have a bridal tongue. It ruins all of it. It's worthless, he says. Back in seminary, we had to get hooked up with mentors. And uh, I met this guy, and I wanted him to be my mentor. He was really well-respected at a nice church in the community. And he asked me to go play golf with him. And so we went to play golf. It was up in Boston. And this guy, he was like Arnold Palmer. I mean, it was amazing how good he was at golf. But we were out on the golf course. This guy said more four-letter words than I even knew existed, okay? I mean, he spent the whole time cursing and just demeaning the other people in our scramble. I mean, he said some of the most crude, I'm even embarrassed to mention him, all right? I learned two things that day. One, he's a much better golfer than me. Two, I do not want this man to be my mentor. Because in spite of his reputation, his tongue proved it worthless. James says the tongue can stain the whole body. Fourthly, it's a restless evil. Sinclair Ferguson says the natural tongue is combative, sows seeds of discord, it's quick to defend itself, and rather than peace, it seeks to divide. That's our natural inclination. And he says what the problem with this is, those are the very strategies of Satan himself. Next, it's poisonous. That's probably making reference to the serpent in the garden. The serpent poisoned Eve with his words, which led all of humanity and creation into sin. What the psalmist says in Psalm 140 is, is that the natural sinful man, his tongue is sharp as a serpent's, and under his lips there is venom. Then lastly, we see in 6D, the source of such poison and such destruction is from hell itself. You'll notice that James is using a lot of imagery that likens the sins of our tongue to the fires of hell. Why? That's exactly where the sins of our tongue come from, the fires of hell. The word that he uses here for hell is the same word that Jesus uses for hell in the New Testament, Gehenna. What is that? It was a small little dump, a garbage dump right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And the Hebrews and the Romans, they would take all of their garbage and all the things that are unclean and they would just burn it there. So it's this constant smoldering, just nasty, putrid smell all the time. And so whenever Jesus was trying to describe hell, he was pointing to that. That's what hell's like. And what's really interesting, scholars tell us that if Joseph of Arimathea hadn't stepped up and provided for Jesus the tomb, the Roman guards probably would have taken his body there. And so this is important because James wants us to understand when poison seeks to break free from our lips, he wants us to know where that poison comes from. Gehenna. We have to understand that. Our words are powerful. And if the uncontrolled tongue, it is power for evil. So James says, Christians, be careful to tame your tongues. Now next, if those two little nuggets were meant to open our minds into the power and the importance of our words, this next point is meant to sober us. <laughs> and friends, trust me, we need to be sobered. What does he say in verses 9 through 12? He says, our tongues reveal what is inside us. All right, it's not just the power thing. We need to be aware of how powerful our words are, but our tongue reveals what's inside us. And he says two things in that regard. In verses 10 through 11, he says our tongues reveal a deep inconsistency to our spirituality. Our tongues, it's like a little x-ray so that we can see the spiritual conditions of our souls. And what James is saying is that our tongues reveal a deep 
abnormality in our spirituality. What does he say in verse 10? He uses that word curse. I don't think he's talking about the four-letter words. I think what he's talking about are those things that we do all the time, slander people, to take them down a notch so we can be exalted above them. Gossip, envy, those sort of things. Now we say, now what's, what's the big deal about that, okay? Yeah, I, I yell at the, the, the train conductor. I ran it, yell at bad drivers. I yell at coaches through the television or Cubs fans who make you know, just ridiculous decisions. And, but what's the big deal about that? They're never going to hear me. Words don't hurt anybody, especially if they don't hear you. Well, James says, yes, they do, and it is a very big deal. Why? Because even if they don't hear us, by the very same mouth, James says, how can one praise the Lord, praise God, and also curse those created in the image of God? And this is what he's saying. He's saying those people that we curse and get mad at, all right, whether it's his spouse, it's just one of those heated moments, a kid, a friend, or a bad driver or a coach or a player on the Grizzlies team, whatever it is, all those people who are, by the way, created in the image of God, when we curse them, he is saying you are cursing God himself because he put his imprint in humanity. And so how can a human being praise God and also curse God with the same tongue? He says plainly, this is not how it's supposed to be. So our tongues reveal that there's something seriously wrong with us. What's wrong with us? Well, we see in verses 11 through 12. In 11 through 12, James rips what he says straight from the mouth of Jesus. Back in Matthew 7, uh, chapter, verses 16 through 20, Jesus says, You can tell a man by his fruit. You will recognize him because a good tree cannot possibly bear bad fruit. What's he saying? When Jesus said what he did about you know, what comes out of our mouths defiles us, he's ref- uh, they didn't understand what he was talking about, so he had to kind of dumb it down and explain it in greater detail. And this is what he said. He said, what comes from a man's mouth actually flows from his heart. And so it's a man's heart that's in trouble here. And James says, our tongue reveals us that we have a serious heart problem. Christians, we must ask ourselves the diagnostic questions. What do our tongues say about us? What do they reveal in us? And if we're honest, we're not just aware of the power of our tongues, but we are sobered to our spiritual poverty. James says it, our tongues point to the fact that we are spiritually poor before the Lord. Friends, are you sobered this morning because of your tongue? If you are, let me tell you, that's good news. Because it's only when we're sobered that we could ever possibly understand the hope that Christ offers us. Now, what is that hope? Because if you're like me, I need that hope right now after reading James 1 through through 13. This is the hope, and it's right there in verse 8a. Our tongues point us to Christ. What does James say in 8a? He says, no man can possibly tame his own tongue. But he's calling us to tame our tongues. But then he says, no man can possibly tame his tongue. So what is he saying? He's saying that we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, we don't need an ear, nose, and throat doctor. We need a cardiologist. We don't need a tongue transplant. We need a spiritual heart transplant. But we cannot give ourselves a heart transplant. No man can tame his tongue. But what does that do? It is pointing us outside of ourselves to the only one, the great doctor, who can. And his name is Jesus Christ. I said in the introduction that in creation, biblical theology, God spoke life in creation. Satan spoke death in the fall. Friends, the great news is God speaks again in redemption. And it is the last word. And what is his last word? Romans 8.1. In spite of your sinful tongues, there is now therefore no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. That is the last, that's the word that God speaks over you in Christ. <laughs> we need to say amen to that. Can we say amen real quick? Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. 
Look at your tongues. See how spiritually poor you are just by the way that we use our mouths. And we know in that Matthew 12 passage that we are going to be held accountable. But then we come to this passage in 8a and it said, there's no man that can tame his tongue, but Christ can. And coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, there's now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. How does this work out? In Ezekiel 36, the promises of the new covenant, God says, listen, I know my people can't follow me because they have a bad heart. Well, what am I going to do? In love and grace, I'm going to give them a brand new stinking heart, a heart that actually beats for me. And more than that, I'm going to give them my spirit so they could actually desire me, so they can follow me. How does that shake out what we see in the New Testament? John 3, 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, other places. God sent his only son so that who should ever believe him might not perish a dirty sinner, but might have everlasting life as a child of God. How? Because he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on our sin. He took on our condemnation. He took on the sins of our tongue. And he gave us his righteousness. And James says in chapter 1, verse 18, and a little few verses later, he says this, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when that implanted word takes up residence in our hearts, <laughs> you and I are made new creations. We're not perfect in this life. We will be one day. But we're made new in Christ. Some of us experience the condemnation of Matthew 12. And that's a good place to start. And some of you want to get rid of the sins of your tongue. You want to flee from it, but you're having trouble to. Friends, go to Jesus as Savior before you go to him as your model. And rest in the fact that in spite of your sin in Christ, you're completely made new. And when God looks upon you, he sees Christ. Now, that's great news. Now, secondly, this verse reminds us that as Christians, we still sin in this life. All right? We have the new heart, we have a new spirit, but we still walk by the flesh, Paul says in Galatians 5. So what does he tell us to do? He says, walk by the Spirit. This encourages us to walk by the Spirit. What does walk by the Spirit mean? That's a Christianese type of word. What does that mean? It essentially means this. Walking by the Spirit is abiding in and being directed by the Word of God. We see that in Galatians 5. When Paul just flows out the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that's the character of Jesus. And what that's saying is when we abide in the Word of the Lord, when we meditate on our great salvation, when we gaze into the beauty of Christ in the gospel, the Holy Spirit slowly but surely begins to transform you into the character of Jesus. He begins to change your desires. He begins to change your speech habits. Walking by the Spirit means taking seriously the Word of God because as we're abiding in the Word of God, our words begin to change into the very words of God Himself. The Spirit begins to transform us. So if you're having trouble, you're a sinner saved by grace, you're in Christ, but you're having a trouble taming your tongue, get into the Word. And the Spirit begins to transform us and free us from the sins of our flesh. Now, very practically, I'm going to go scream through these really quick. What does that look like? When we're abiding in the Word of God, when we come to Christ, we've been made new, and He's given us His Spirit, and we're being transformed in His likeness, one thing happens. One, rather than exalt ourselves, we begin to praise God with our voices. And that's the natural outcome of someone who is poor in spirit, who comes to Jesus Christ in humility, knowing that they are condemned by their very words. But then going to Christ and realizing that Jesus gives us his righteousness and take our sin. You know what the natural outcome of that is? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. That's the natural outcome of a sinner saved by grace. That's a fruit of true and saving faith. Not the praise of ourselves, but the praise of God. Secondly, your speech no longer becomes a world of unrighteousness, but is rather seasoned with the gospel of grace. 
I'm going to read those two passages, but look at them later. What that tells us is to the degree which we experience the grace of God, we're going to extend that to each other. If you understand the grace that you've received, not only are you going to praise God, but you're going to praise those and create in the image of God. So we're no longer going to look for ways to condemn people or to tear people down, but rather we're going to build them up. We're going to try to catch people doing good rather than doing bad, and we're going to bless them. To the degree which we experience grace, we extend that to the other people. Thirdly and lastly, we begin to breathe life into others. Jesus says that his words in John 6, 63 are words of the spirit and life. Jesus speaks life. Our master speaks life. The one that the spirits transform into speaks life. Do you find it interesting that the people who most opposed Jesus and therefore the people who were in turn condemned by Jesus were the religious people, the Pharisees, those who rejected sinners, those who turned their face from sinners, those who turned sinners from being people into things. They're not a human being, they're sinners. But the people who gravitated towards Jesus were the drunkards, the prostitutes, the down and out, the hopeless. Why? Because Jesus spoke words of life. And in those words of life, you saw thieves return their spoil, you saw adulterers become chaste, and you saw sinners saved by grace. And it's those men, not the religious people, who ended up being great evangelists for the kingdom of God. <laughs> what does that tell us? Yes, there is power in our tongues for death and life, but it's only those who experience the life of Christ that will spew life from their lips to others. Friends, let this passage draw us to Christ. Whoever you are, believer and non-believer, still deciding on Jesus, let this passage draw you to Jesus, the one whose words alone gives life and turns your mouth from a weapon of destruction into an instrument of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the formation that you bring us by your spirit through your word. And Lord, this morning we pray that we would leave here today completely overwhelmed by the fact that you have made us righteous even though our very existence and the sins in our life tell us we don't deserve it. But in your grace and mercy, you give us your righteousness in Christ. And Father, out of that, may we be a people who sing of your praises. May our mouths be seasoned with your grace. And as those who have received life, may we give life to others. And we pray this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.